Uh, if you didn't do your homework, you're welcome to listen. You can, you, actually, you can move your lips. We can read your lips. That's good enough. If you did your homework, please speak up. Um, actually, let me, let me encourage you, if you didn't do your homework, if we have scripture to read, raise your hand. Uh, we'll let you read the scripture. That'd be great. Um, we saw last, last time we met, in talking about part one, the concept of the ember. That a congregation is like an, is like embers, and as you know, that uh, when you have charcoal fire or any kind of fire, you uh, as the uh, pieces of fuel are put together closely, their combined heat exceeds the heat of each of them individually, the sum of each of them individually. Uh, it actually feeds it; it makes it hotter. And the reverse is true. You want to put a fire out. What do you do? You spread it out. You spread the embers out so that the embers do not uh, um, warm each other up. Makes sense? So we're looking at uh, righteousness and sin with that concept in mind. And you can tell me if you think when we're done if that fits the concept that we saw in First John. I asked you to read the whole book again. And then to read this section that we had thematically arranged by sin and righteousness. We're doing this for a reason. Because we've picked some key, key themes out of the book. But we're also doing it because First uh, John is written by a, a brilliant man who uh, um, has a lot to say and he just says it all, just comes right out. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, because of that, sometimes it seems to skip around. And the first time I thought, you know, I wonder what this would look like thematically and rearranged it, I was like, wow, I can kind of get a better grasp of what he was saying. So it's just a tool, just a tool. There's nothing wrong with reading it in order and that's why I asked you to read it in order and then read it, read it thematically. We saw that the same way last week, that tame, tame is not sin in and of itself. It could be a result of sin. Tame, or impurity, uncleanness, is not a sin in and of itself. Because, obviously, sometimes you become tame in the actual performing of a mitzvah. So, somebody give me one example of performing a mitzvah where you'd become tame. Bearing a dead relative is probably one of the best examples. Okay, one more. Yeah, the woman giving birth. Yeah, be fruitful and multiply. Absolutely. Living with your wife. That's right. Absolutely. Living with your wife. And giving woman giving birth, remarkably, she actually has to make a sin offering afterwards as well. So, depending on whether it's male or female, how far after has to make a sin offering. Not just, not just, a, you know, purify yourself, you know, in a, in a clean sort of way, but a sin offering. Yes. Why is that? Hmm. Nida. Tractate Nida. Bonk. All right. But we saw that in the same way, Tameh can affect a group of people. How did we see that? One person becomes Tameh, and they can corrupt or pollute the tabernacle or the temple grounds, right? Obviously. And in some cases, not many, but in some cases, Tameh is contagious. We use that word, but it's not really. But it's, it, you can give Tameh to someone else by touch. And obviously, if it were unbeknownst, you could actually theoretically pollute the holy place or something holy with impurity. So the whole congregation would suffer for one person's inattention to the issue of Tameh. Which brings up some very interesting questions regarding halakha in the community. Mm-hmm. Which, at least in 
Messianic groups is not talked about. Sure. So I'd love to, not now, but I'd love to. In, an, in another setting, in another setting, yes. However, I would suggest that before that kind of discussion goes on, we would have to spend some deep study in the Torah with regard to the issue of contagion. Uh, and that's and to me that's the biggest issue, and that's why that's why Orthodox community treats it different than many Messianic communities is because the 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 Torah itself only gives I think one place where it talks about being contagious, where you can well more than once, where it's second degree oh, contagion. Yeah. One level from Lo- one level from the person who's actually tummy. But yeah, excellent, it'll be great study. Uh, and, then, and if you don't know what we're talking about, it's okay. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> versus come or un. Actually, no. Thank you. Good, well, very good point. Tame versus tahor. Impure versus pure. And then there is kol versus kadosh. Common versus holy. Those are similar concepts. Very similar concepts. But they are not the same. Can something common be made holy? It's our job to do it every single day. To make common things holy. Eating becomes holy. That's right. We become holy. We're common. That's right. It is our duty to the master of the universe to take common things and make them holy. What we saw, though, with regard to Tameh, is we spent some time with the four particular sins, specifically in Ezekiel chapter 33 and Acts chapter 15. These four sins seem to be polluting to congregations, to groups. And as a result, they bear a particular mark. Don't misunderstand. Sin is sin, and it's, and it's an offense to God. But these four sins pollute a congregation. What are they? General. Murder. Blood. Blood in what way? Murder. Okay, murder. Sexual immorality. Idolatry. 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 Another one? Sexual. Things strangled. Eating with blood. Okay, now, those are, we saw those in Acts chapter 15. We see them in Ezekiel chapter 33, not in reference to Gentiles, but in reference to Israel itself. These four, and actually if you go and you follow these, and you go back to the Torah, which we spent a lot of time looking at if you did your homework, we saw that these actually were sins of, as we would call it, a capital offense. It's pretty remarkable. Wow. God gave us some value all sin is an offense, but he gave us some value as to sin that not just the not only offends him, but pollutes the group. Okay, boy, isn't that teaching on Tameh Tahor? Awesome stuff. If you didn't ever study it before, you missed the whole idea that sin can be contagious. Which is why you have Shaul in I think it's First Corinthians four or five, and then talks about it in a couple other places. Specifically talking about the person in the con- in the community or in the congregation that gets involved in sexual morality, and you go and you confront them. That's right. Refuse. You take a couple, you know, a couple of witnesses with you. They refuse. If that if they get to that point where they're continuing in that sin and they're not and they're not repentant, he says you got to cut them off from the community. That's right. And that's, the, and that's what we saw in, we studied the word karat. 
in the Torah. We saw how these sins, some sins that rise to this level of polluting the community, blasphemy is another one, uh, are actually, the, the, the penalty for them is not man-made. It's not something we're supposed to enact. It's simply to allow Hashem to act, karap, to cut them off from the community, to separate yourself from them in the community. What's the danger of that? We can't live without each other. And anybody who thinks they can doesn't understand karat. Yeah, I also think there's another perspective on that, and that is, it gets back to loving your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, if there is a, uh, if, if there is a, let's just call it a cancer or something that could affect, right? At some point, if you allow that to fester and grow, then you've now put the community at risk. Mm-hmm. And how is that showing love? And Absolutely. And, and as, a, as a student of the Torah, you, of course, know that it comes straight out of the heart of Leviticus. When it says, love your neighbor of yourself, the context is, if you see your fellow Israelite sin, do not let his sin go, because that's not love. Excellent. Good points, guys. Okay, let's, we're, I think we're caught up, maybe. So, this week's homework. Now that we're all caught up. That's the problem with going a long time, you know. Uh, the Protestant Reformation, we talked about this, and I gave you this intro, and I'm going to kind of go through this real quickly, because this is all the text I gave you in the intro. The Protestant Reformation put righteousness in the courtroom, developing the doctrine of imputed righteousness or forensic righteousness. Forensic meaning having to do with the courtroom. So, here's this picture. Now, you tell me, this is a parable. Here's this picture that we have been given by, by virtue of the Protestant Reformation. I stand, I stand before the holy judge. An accuser comes to me and says, Rick is a sinner. He has sinned against your law, your holy law. The accuser calls it the holy law. Your holy law, he has sinned against it repeatedly. You have said, righteous judge, that everyone who sins shall die. And more than the death penalty, that they should be separated from you. Sin is an offense to you, holy judge. What are you going to do? He cannot prove anything except sin. My advocate comes forward and says, all true. However, I paid the penalty for sin, but even more so, my righteousness will clothe him. My righteousness is imputed to him in the courtroom. Okay, that's what the Protestant Reformation Said Now, you may not have a problem with that parable at all. Sounds pretty good. I think it does, actually. The problem is this issue of righteousness. Because here's the issue that the Protestant Reformation went through. They were fighting a religion, Roman Catholicism, that they said was based upon works. Salvation by works. Every religion accuses every other religion of having salvation based by works. I've yet to hear anybody going, that's us, that's what we do. Really. I think every religion, no matter how false, has the right to define itself. No matter how false, they have the right to define itself. We can reject it, but you know, who's to tell them what they believe? I, I reject it, but I don't I don't care what you believe. But the, that, that's the issue. So Protestantism, the reform movement, actually was defining itself as other than that. Catholic, other than having a worse... So we have to come up with something else. Well, it's 
drawing some, from some great passages in Romans, they came up with it's forensic righteousness, particularly in Romans chapter 4, where it actually says, and Abraham believed God, quoting from Genesis chapter 12, and it was credited unto him as righteousness. Imputed. Imputed. Okay? Who can argue with that? That there is imputed righteousness. But is it, from, it, is in, but is it in the courtroom of condemned, condemnation versus salvation that righteousness... Okay, so let me ask you this. Let's just think with me for a second. If I come to you and I tell you, listen, what you do has nothing to do with it. In fact, when you work hard for your own salvation, that's, that's awful. That's, that's a sin. Messiah's blood will cover your sin. And you're clothed with his righteousness. And you say, whoa, 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 stop. You just gave me two things. Which is it? What I do is I offend God because of my sin. What makes me offend? What makes me agreeable to him? In this concept of Protestant Reformation, they would say, well, what makes you agreeable is your sin's been covered. Well, then what does imputed righteousness have to do with it? That's like, is that over the top? Are we talking about negative, positive values? We've already established you can't get a positive. Even if Messiah adds to it, all that matters is my sin's covered, right? True? I mean, do you see where I'm going? There's, to me... When we talk about imputed righteousness in the courtroom setting, it's, it's, it's a moot point. It makes no difference. It's a waste. Is Messiah's righteousness a waste? Heaven forbid we ever consider that. So, that concept then of the courtroom, forensic righteousness, that's the word, that's the theological word, it means courtroom. That concept, we need to re-examine and see, is that what God, is that what Paul was speaking? Is that what he was inspired to speak of? Okay? That's the background. I'm going to drop this thing. Okay, now I told you, the, right, the reformers even went so far as to say, if you have practical righteousness, that's even bad. Now there's some extreme versions of Protestantism today that they make a really big deal about it. I heard something recently in a group setting. This was the statement. Looking at the group. If you think that performing a mitzvah, performing a good deed, is pleasing to God, you're fooling yourself. Why would anybody say something like that? Well, no. The answer that I received back, three times repeats, the answer that I received back in a private setting was, well, you have to understand... This group has many people that would take works and run with it. While then they would just be trying to do it all themselves. So to guard the weaker, this is the term, the weaker brother who's trying to earn his way into God's favor. We have to say things like that. Now, okay, who's the weaker brother? The weaker brother is the one that tries to obey God. Now what about the other brother? The opposite extreme would be the one that just kind of blows it off and says, well, God's taking care of it. I do whatever I want. That's not the weaker brother. That's not the fear. That's not the danger of a congregation. What did we just talk about with sin? That's the danger of a congregation, right? Sin spreads. Yes? Doing a word study on that word weak is, is, uh, is Good. really cool because uh, often when Paul uses it, I think it's in the, in, the, in the capacity that it's not so much one who can't do, but one who is strong enough to do, but chooses not to. Very good. Excellent. That's Romans chapter 14. Absolutely. Very good. 
Righteousness is not put in the balance against sin. This is what we need to... When we talk about imputed righteousness, by the way, I want you to understand, I believe in imputed righteousness. But when we talk about imputed righteousness, we cannot put it in the context of it being a balance against sin. That's That's insane. That's actually the opposite of what God says. Our sin must be covered, but not by righteousness. How can sin be covered? There's only one covering for sin. Blood. Right? So, without blood, there's no covering. Righteousness is not at issue here. So then maybe we need to split it into two events. First, you go into the state courtroom for your traffic ticket. Guy comes in and says, I paid for that. Then you walk out of the courtroom and go to the state fair. where the same guy then comes and says, here, take my prize radish. <laughs> That's good. I like that. <laughs> The prize radish is not something I would have thought of, but that's good. He changed it in the last minute. Here's the key. Excuse me. Speeding ticket and it's paid for. You get back on the road, speed limit is still there. That's right. Boy, you nailed it. That's exactly right. I guess I've been thinking about this issue. And to me, and I don't know if this is the right terminology, but this is just the way it makes sense to me. And, you know, rather than practical righteousness and ultimate righteousness or whatever, <laughs> it's my. I like I like in your I think it was in your intro or maybe it was the lesson one where you said righteousness is as righteousness it does. That's what John says, First John. Right. Mm-hmm. So the the idea that my righteousness, my my Good deeds are my righteousness. Absolutely. But we know Isaiah said, you know, my... my Hold that thought because we're getting to that. Well, my righteousness is as a filthy rags. Mm-hmm. In what context? In the context of standing before a holy God. Of course. So then I need the covering, the blood covering of Messiah as, and here's the term I prefer justification before God. In other words, it's Messiah's um, uh, Messiah's work in my life that justifies me before a holy God. Not my not my good works, because my good works are as filthy rags before a holy God. But nevertheless, my good works in this life are my righteousness. This was not part of your lesson, but I don't want to get too far off on that. But one of the things that comes up when we talk about justification is, justification is a, is a very important word to Paul. Very important word to Paul. And Paul uses justification, I believe, in a t- totally different way than the reformers t- thought. To them, it was the courtroom again. I don't think it's a courtroom. I think it's a bed dean. There's only one judge. The courtroom is different from a bed dean, isn't it? And the bed dean is deciding... Am I, part of the, am I part of the house of Israel or not? But in ways that maybe you haven't considered, I believe the primary thing that Paul deals with throughout all his epistles is conversion to Judaism. And so everything in my mind is, and Galatians is certainly there, everything is under that context. So justification to me, when I read Paul talks about justification, I see it having to do with whether I can have standing as a, as a full member of the covenant. That if I have standing, right? Legal standing. In other words, can you refer to me as an Israelite indeed? That's what conversion says. That's what I think Messiah's work did for all of us, Jew and Gentile both. 
So I think that this distinction we're saying here is that uh, righteousness is not the atonement. No, that's it. Absolutely. Just, just to go back to what you're saying, though, I wasn't disagreeing with what you're saying. I'm just trying to refine my mind. Justification is something other than simply saying, just as if I never sinned. Because I don't believe that. Because I did. And the righteous judge knows that I did. When it says he throws my sins as far as the east is from the west, God does not make himself forget. He's a righteous judge. He's an all-knowing judge. He knows my heart. I don't have to stand before him and prove somehow that I have any righteous, even if it's Messiah's. All of it's insufficient. I cannot stand before him without sin being atoned for. I just can't. Move on. Or I'll be here all night. How'd you do this? Because <laughs> mine keeps staying down. It keeps retracting here. <laughs> Okay, this is the, I wanted to get back to this filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. Interesting progression. I think many of the people that quote Isaiah 64, 6, by the way, I got this quoted to me a lot more now than I used to. <laughs> All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Starting in verse 1. Oh, that you might rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for, for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has I seen any God beside you. Who acts for the one who waits for him? Stop there. What's that just describing? Well, we just read in the first Sinai. It's ironic to me that this verse gets quoted to me. Verse 6 gets quoted to me a lot now because they didn't read the verses that came in front of it. It's about Sinai. Just like they always quote the end of, or the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, but not the end of Hebrews chapter 12. So all our righteousness is as filthy rags, it says in verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquity is like the wind. Verse 1 through 4 is like Sinai, but look at verse 5. Remember, it says, and we, excuse me, verse 4, it says, who acts for the one who waits for him. Verse 5, you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness. Whoa. One verse later, we're going to be told that all of our righteousness is filthy rags. And yet in verse 5, it says, who waits for him who, who rejoices who meets for him, who rejoices, him who rejoices and does righteousness. Is righteousness pleasing to God? Does righteousness pleasing? Does is different from imputed. In the previous verse, I guess in 5, when it's talking about for all unclean things, and then we get to the filthy rags, which is, I think, this page. Yep. Um, verse, yeah, verse 6, yeah. When it talks about filthy rags... Um, I read somewhere that it's actually when, when it says, says that specifically, it's referring to the mes- menstrual clock. Actually, it's not, but it said, but the word tame is there. Yes, it could be anything. It could be. I mean, it could be binding up an oozing sore. I think that's. I think that's nice graphic language for people who want who want to. We just. We discuss things like that all the time. You don't find that from pulpits very often, <laughs> but they like that one. I don't know why. Well, I, I was just going to share how the 
ESV translates the uh, end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. Uh, no eye has seen God but besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Absolutely. That's cool, isn't it? Wow, right there in front of the verse that they quote to me. What's up with that? I, I was just thinking here with regards to my righteousness is filthy rags and the idea of Tame in the sense that um, maybe it could be understood as our righteousness is as filthy rags with regards to achieving a sense of atonement. Our, our righteous deeds, even though they may be good, the rag's not inherently done clean. No. But it's tainted of by course. the other sin in our Absolutely. lives. Absolutely. And it can't overcome that. So in other words... Which is exactly rag, what we're talking about. This rag is not inherently unclean or bad. But once it comes in contact with that which is unclean, the rag itself's good virtue can't overcome that unclean status. If we're students of the Torah, we know that if something's holy has been dedicated to, to Hashem, what touches it becomes holy. But if something's unclean, what touches it becomes unclean. And I think that the Jewish, Jewish prayers talk about this concept too, and they say we have no worthy deeds. Of course. Well, obviously, Jewish people understand the idea of righteousness and trying to, to obey God and that God rewards that righteousness. But at the same time, what they also realize is that no matter how righteous I can be, That's right. my righteousness can't exceed, in a sense, the penalty for my sin. I can't cover it with my own righteousness. See? But here's the key. is No righteousness can cover it. Judaism actually does get that. No righteousness can cover sin. No one's. Because righteousness can't cover sin. No. Only blood can. When Joshua said that, I just got a picture of, you know, the altar. When we heard the altar, mm-hmm. we're not supposed to defile it. That's right. That's right. Very good, guys. Uh, moving on. Verse 9 through nine through 12. Do not be furious, O, o Adonai, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem and desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple, where our fathers praise you, is burned up with fire, and our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Adonai? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? What is this whole chapter about? It's chapter about saying, Remember Sinai. We're your people. You said we're your people. You have approached the one. You, you draw near to the one who does righteousness. All our righteousness is a filthy rags, but you have, have rightfully def, devastated even your holy sanctuary. Don't stop there. This doesn't diminish the verse, all our righteousness is filthy rags. It puts it in context. It's not a global statement. It's not an all-inclusive. I'm sorry, don't do anything. Because if you do, it's just filthy rags. It's menstrual cloth. Come on. That's not at all what this passage says. In fact, it says the opposite. It says that God approaches those who do righteousness, but ultimately it is His mercy that redeems us. Right? Daniel 9, I had you look this up. Somebody got this real quick. Daniel 9, 4 through 19. And actually, we're not going to read the whole thing. Um, Start with verse 4 and verse 5, somebody. Daniel 9, 4 and 5. And I prayed to Adonai my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your 
precepts and your judgments. Hmm. Verse 7. O Adonai, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and far off in the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness of which they have committed against you. Verse 10. We have not obeyed the voice of Adonai our God to walk in his ways, to walk in his laws, and he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel transgressed your law. What's the result of all this? Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplication before because of our righteous deeds. Takonum, which is the portion that Joshua is referring to in the, in the daily prayers, in the Shakari prayers, does this. We can't count on our own righteousness. We don't approach you as if we have anything at all. Six pages of it, yeah. Daniel's throwing himself in his group of six. Yep. Daniel's considered one of the most righteous people to have ever lived. As Yeshua said, if he couldn't have saved himself, if... Other than himself, if if he was the only one, then if we've got him in Jeremiah being praised as this great man, or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel actually. Then, um, then here he's throwing himself in with sinners. Clearly, we're talking about a different issue than scales one to one. One sin, one one righteous deed. One sin, one righteous deed. See, nothing can cover sin but blood. No righteous deed can undercover sin. You know, it's like. The, in my mind, you know, I'm not a great theologian. I, I'm thankful for that. But why don't they see it? Why don't they see it? It's pretty obvious. Righteousness does not cover sin. So why are you trying to make it like it is? Well, Rick, isn't it, isn't it just like the sacrifices? Wait a minute. The sacrifices they did in the temple could never take away sin. Why would you not want to do them if we rebuild the temple? Because they were standing, and we got the real thing. We don't need that anymore. To change what you said earlier, which I heard as well, if you think what means what is pleasing to God, you're foolish or you're fooling yourself. Uh, it really should be over here. If you think what righteous act covers one sin, exactly, you're fooling yourself. Exactly. That's Absolutely. No question about it. Yeah. It's not about covering sin. It's about pleasing God. We're going to go into that. Of there is no of sins. That's right. Daniel, Daniel, uh, Daniel four twenty seven, which is actually pretty good. Daniel is talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar's sin, and he needs to repent. It says, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Break off your sin? He doesn't say cover. That's interesting. He doesn't say do away with. He says break off. Uh, perek means it is literally in the Palel form is to tear off. Tear it off. How does that work? Listen, if you're doing righteousness, you're not sinning. That, I mean, it's not hard. If, you, if your congregation has sins in it, get them to stop sinning by doing something right. That's it. If they're not sinning, that is righteousness. It's not hard. We're not talking about getting to neutral. If you're obeying God, that means you're not sinning and you are doing righteousness. It's not neutral. It's positive. It's good. It pleases the one, the all-knowing judge. One thing about this that's important, though, is that Daniel, and we see this in the other passages you have up here, God is the rewarder of those who are obedient. 
disobedient. And what's intriguing here is the fact that it's sort of like the idea, I think a couple weeks ago, or a couple lessons ago, you had the concept of um, the repentant, always, there's always time for repentance until judgment happens. That's right. And the same thing here, in a sense, Daniel's telling the king, you still have a chance at repenting because the judgment hasn't happened yet. So right. even though your sin has negative consequences, of course, there's still opportunity to, in effect, be rewarded for good deeds. It's the same thing with the, with Jonah going to people of Nineveh, etc. Um, you can you can put off or, or cancel, in a sense, an evil decree by repenting. That's exactly right. Well, are we talking about are we talking about earning a way? See, this is the problem. Everything comes down to salvation, and everything in the book is not about it. But it's still mercy here, though. It's always God's mercy. Because Daniel says, perhaps it may be that absolutely. You do what you can do. You know, if you, if we would just start treating, if we would just start remembering that God is a father, and He's a good father, and if you are even bad fathers, and punish your children for doing good, and reward them for doing bad, how how can you imagine that God would be like that? You don't. You were even a bad father rewards his children for obedience and punishes them for disobedience. And if he's our father, why wouldn't he be like that? There's a, there's a verse in Kirkwood. I, I can't remember which where the question is asked to, to the rabbi: When should you when should you repent? The last day of your life. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's some wise stuff, man. <laughs> okay, was Paul a false prophet? We're going to move these pretty quick here. Because some people already think he is, so we got to... Deuteronomy 6.24, I'm going I'm to read this. Deuteronomy 6.24-25. If you haven't memorized this, by the way, this you should memorize. This is a ver- these are two verses you should have down. And Adonai commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear Adonai our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before Adonai our God as he has commanded us. The Torah says that if you obey him, his commandments, it's righteousness for you. Anybody that says differently is a false prophet. Period. If if someone says, oh no, it's not righteousness for you. That's not righteousness. Doing good deeds is not righteousness. It's just not. You know, you can just say, well, fine. Glad to talk to you. I don't need to hear any more from you. Because I know exactly where you stand now. That's a, that's a false prophet. But Paul kind of sounds like that. So let's look at this. Romans chapter 3. Uh, somebody start with uh, verse, uh, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of of God through faith in Yeshua for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in the Messiah. I'm sorry. It sounds a lot like you said that Righteousness apart from the law, the commandments. In other words, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. Don't want the righteousness, it will be righteousness for you. Bad righteousness. It's God's righteousness would be better. See, this is one of the differences, I hope, between us and the people who look in at us. 
They see a list of rules and regulations, a lifestyle of rules and regulations. We should see that this is an act of love. Everything that we do is simply, well, why would I not want the best? And he says, this is, this is good for me. Why would I not want that? Why would I not want to express the Moedim? Because he said, I'll meet you there. I mean, it's like, oh, this is the one we want. This is the one we wait for, that we love. And we don't want to do that? I mean, that's nuts. Yes, it is a command and it's not, it's not optional. But a command, a mitzvah, is a desire. It's a good thing. It's not something we feel compelled to do. It's something we want to do. Well, that is, you know, that's why the word mitzvah is used. So, so is Paul saying something different from the Torah? Let's move on. Romans chapter 4. Boy, this is aggravating. Talking about the uh, remote, not the Paul. Yeah, the remote. Although Paul can be aggravating at times, but in different ways. It's not dropping on me here. I got to get a new one here. This is nuts. All right. Romans, chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. Righteousness through faith. Oh, that's different. Not righteousness through works. We don't want that. How about Romans 4, 22? Righteousness that's imputed. This is what is really interesting because he actually gets... This is where, man, Luther dug in here and, and made a camp. And therefore, it was accounted for him, speaking of Abraham, accounted him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. It should be imputed to us who believe in him who raised Yeshua our, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offense and was raised because of our justification. Wow, it's like, wow, those are just perfect theological words. What did it all mean? Sure sounds like he just undid what Deuteronomy 6.24 said. Imputed, I mean, it's even there. Imputed righteousness. He didn't say the word for forensic, that's good. Romans 9.30. <laughs> Romans 9.30. 30 through 31. What should we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, you weren't after it, have attained righteousness. <laughs> I didn't have to do a thing. Even the, even the righteousness of faith. <laughs> it's like, I think it and it happens. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, how dare they pursue the law of righteousness? Even though Romans or Deuteronomy 6 says, it will be righteousness for you. Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Wow, man, that's some brutal stuff. It really is. Honestly, it is. So is Paul against? Is Paul a false prophet? I hope you know I'm not going to say he is. Galatians 2.21 I did not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Messiah died in vain. I'm sorry, that sounds a lot like a direct refutation of Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25. Unless the law means something else. Just like justification might mean something else. If righteousness, if standing, if legal standing in a bed deen, not a heavenly bed deen, if legal standing comes by the law, then what was the point of Messiah dying? You could have just gone and got, just join up, man. You know. Uh, now here's another one. I, I got to say this because this is really good. Mm. Psalms 119.86 All your commandments are faith. Kol mitzvotecha 
Emunah. Your, ver- your version may say all your commandments are faithful. The word is not faithful. The word is faith. Well, the point is, the reason why they put faithful and not faith is because they're disturbed by what that means. All your commandments are faith? No, works and faith are opposite, right? Well, maybe we should just change what our meaning is faith. That's right. It's the Hebrew word emunah, if I recall correctly, comes from the word emet. Truth. Same, same root. Yep. So you have, it's a sense of stability, a sense of consistency, a sense of grabbing hold of something and not letting go. Well, it's just like Jacob did. Psalm 119, 172. All your commandments are righteous. All your commandments are righteousness. You want righteousness? Keep the mitzvah. So are these mutual exclusive or is it? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't. I don't know if I have the answer to that. I think it's going to work now. It's working now. Your keyboard cannot be identified. It will be usable until identified. <laughs> oh well. Thank you anyway. <laughs> I think it's working now. Really? Yep. Did Paul? Did Paul contradict Paul? Now I'm not trying to ca- cause doubt on Paul here. But what I want to show you is that the moment that you think you've got Paul figured out, you have misunderstood Paul even more. (laughs) And the proof is, Paul can't even agree with Paul. Well, Paul does agree with the Torah. Paul does agree with himself. The problem is, we got a difficulty. We're looking through a layer of, we're looking through a layer of, excuse me, platonic uh, philosophy. We're looking through a layer of Western thinking. The 2,000 years. Yeah. And Protestant Protestant Reformation. Romans 6.16. Do you not know that to whom you present your slaves, yourself slaves to obey, you are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, or obedience leading to righteousness? Obedience leads to righteousness? He just said no. Nothing can bring you righteousness except by faith. Maybe we don't understand the word faith means. as, As Joshua said. Yeah. He says... Obedience leading to righteousness. First Timothy. Bump. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh man, that's great. First Timothy, six eleven. Pursue righteousness. He actually gives us the command, and it is an imperative. Romans chapter uh, two, verse verse four. I got to read this. Or do not despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. <coughs> This is one of the things that we're missing. You know, every single person that stands up and says, don't count on your works, still wants you to raise a hand. Wait, I know that doesn't take a lot of work, but it does take some to get my hand up there. That's why I say everybody is pointing at everybody else saying, salvation by works, salvation by works. And I promise you, it doesn't matter how free will Baptist you are, it's still salvation by works. If that's your view. Sis, you've got to make a decision. Well, you've got to trust God. Okay, okay, so I'm not doing it with my hands, but it's still with my head. But you still have to speak. Oh no, I've got to profess with my mouth, as it says in Romans chapter 10. And believe in your heart. See, the problem is that we are so focused on not doing anything that we've confused the whole mess of it. I think our, our, problem, our problem is that Luther mistakenly said salvation comes by faith alone. 
when the rea- reality, if we look at Ephesians 2, verse 8... We're going to do that in here a second. ...which you really see is it's by grace alone, which is what we were getting at earlier. We are only given forgiveness Absolutely. by God's mercy. Absolutely. There is literally nothing we can do to achieve that, and as a response to that mercy, then we repent and believe. And who of all the religions of the world, understands that concept more than anybody else. And it's not Luther. It's Judaism. They understand the only reason why we were chosen, we were the littlest of all the people. We were the stiff-necked people. God chose us by His grace and grace alone. He rescued us out of Egypt. We didn't even know His name. Isn't that what we say? We didn't even know who He was. And he rests with his outstretched arm. I mean, we didn't do nothing and he saved us. It's a pretty remarkable picture. And actually, I, I had, I believe, a non-believing religion professor that painted a beautiful picture with, this, with the Exodus. And he, he pointed out that the people of Egypt or of Israel were saved, saved from Egypt first. Then God gave the, this Absolutely. same people the Torah. A way to walk. Backwards. Way to walk. Verse 5, but in accordance with the hardness in your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. By the way, that's from the Tanakh, and it's quoted more than once in the Apostolic Scripture. Render to each one according to his deeds. Protestantism has to play games with that. Okay? Eternal life to those by patient continuance in doing good. Seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignity, and wrath. Now, I'm not trying to say that Paul's teaching a salvation by works here. What I'm saying is, Paul just contradicted himself. If that's the way you understand what Paul was saying. Right? As Peter said, it's very difficult to understand Paul. And I added, if you, thought, if you think you understand him, you don't. Ephesians chapter 2, as Joshua was talking about. What are we saved? But Joshua, would you mind reading that? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Okay. For by, anybody know how to quote it? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Continuing is what you should also have memorized. For we are his workmanship, created in the sight of four good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in Does it please God to do a little mitzvah? If I help a little lady across the street, does that please God? Man, if there was anything that you ought to know, it's that pleases God. Why? How do I know that? How do I know that? I got a book from cover to cover talks about the righteous who do what God asks them to do and are rewarded. I mean, it's like cover to cover. And the disobedient who don't and are punished. In fact, strangely enough, Hebrews actually defines faith by that. That faith is believing that God is and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That's right. And the writer of Hebrews, when he said that, quoted, or excuse me, paraphrased, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, paraphrased 
what Pharisaic Judaism has as its one of its major tenets. And that is that God rewards those who seek Him. Yep. And getting back, I think we should remember Ephesians 2 8, the idea of saved by grace. Grace. We're not saying that seeking God is why He decides to show us mercy. He gives us mercy on His own accord, and as a response to that, we obey. Well, there's none who seek God. None. Not one. Yeah, Johnny. Well, His grace also, it's not just a head thing, it's, it's a. It's, God's divine empowerment for us to begin resisting Boy, that sin. you named it. That's exactly right. What do we read? What is the new covenant? It's not that we don't have to do what he has to do, which is just absurd. I mean, it's just absurd at the face of it. On the face of it. Here's what, what is the Torah? What are his commandments? They're reveal, his revealed character. It's not my righteousness, his righteousness. His revealed character. His revealed, he wants to show the world what he's like. Right? And so, if I do that, that's wrong? <laughs> yeah, lots of people use the, you know, several metaphors, a swinging pendulum, a double-edged sword, what have you, for the Torah and its relationship to it is. us before and after we come to faith, before it condemns us. That's right. You named it. You know, everybody likes to call it our standard of righteousness. It is. And, 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 and the angel, by the way, the angel at the Garden of Eden is the perfect example of that. The angels. Because Caribbean stand there with, with a flaming sword. It is represented as the Torah. And it does condemn those who approach. However, it also provides protection for those who approach. I think that's the whole principle of Kiddush Hashem and sanctifying. Absolutely. And what sense does it make? We're salt and light. We're ambassadors. We're representatives. How awesome. And it's our privilege. It's it's our privilege. I mean it's not it's not it's not a compulsion. I mean, when when I was a kid growing up, I thought duty, that's a bad thing. I don't want to have anything to do with duty. You know, I was I didn't have a good military upbringing. I've come to appreciate the word duty to the degree that it is the ultimate expression of love. But it's also such a part of the relationship too. I mean as I'm sure I, I, I'm not a father, but I can see this in my younger siblings copying me as an older brother or, or copying my parents. I'm sure as fathers you can see that in your children. When children want to do what their parents do, it is the ultimate in a sense of respect and love and relationship building. The fact that my younger brother wants to sit down on the couch next to me and watch a football game because I do it is a blessing. How, why would any parent, especially your Heavenly Father, look at that and say, I don't want you doing what I'm doing? And, and Joshua nailed it. And this, by the way, this is one of the things that concerns people when, they, when people, when they find out, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I keep the commandments. So it's like, well, man, you're going to get a cold religion. You know, what we need to encourage them in is that as we practice what God says, it is, it is an effort. It's an effort. It's, an, it's a desire to, to walk with him in doing it. He said it, and we find that when we exercise, actually it, it improves our relationship, our respect for him, no doubt. But even more than that, you know, to obey God simply out of fear, in the classical no- way of understanding fear, is not what we're talking about. We're talking about obeying God out of love, which, by the way, is the true fear of God. Right? I mean, I can't imagine not having him. <laughs> That's a frightening thing. Right? We get to. You know, and that's what I tell people all the time. It's like, well, do you have to? No, I get to. You know, must I? I promise. If that's your 
question right now, it will change. You start doing it and you won't be asking, must I? That's the whole nonsense about divine invitation. Excuse me? Okay, I get invited, but if I actually participate, pretty soon you're going to have to fight me to get rid of it. Right? Absolutely. Titus 3 is so good because Paul really does a great job in kind of summing up our perspective and kind of makes you wonder about all those other places where it seems to be saying something different. He says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, by grace, but according to His mercy saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Messiah Yeshua our Savior. What is it? Blood and only blood. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to, to the hope of eternal life. What a gift. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works, mitzvot. These things are good and profitable to man. It pleases him. But they're good for us too. It's kind of like saying, eat your oatmeal. Oh, great. I can eat my oatmeal. But then if I were to say, if I were to say you know something, Ice cream is the best thing that you can do for yourself. But I'd be saying, okay, okay, I'll, I'll believe that. The point is, when we begin to see God's commandments, the relationship with Him in performing His commandments as the, as the ice cream, then we don't ever care about, you know, it, does, it could taste like oatmeal, it doesn't matter. You know, I see it this way, and that's the way it is. It is your life. It is your life. John's call to righteousness. And we went all this way just to hear what John had to say. John 2.36. Somebody read that. 2.3-6. Two, two, First John. Excuse me. First John 2.3-6. Knowing what we know now about righteousness, that's why we did all that to come into John. What's John's perspective on righteousness? What does he think about righteousness? We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. The man who says, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are to know our this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Yeshua. This is what I love about John. In all of his books, they are so centered on relationship and love, which is why we're doing first John. Because keeping commandments outside of a relationship is, is probably silly. <clears throat> this is about a relationship. And that's what he, exactly what he talks about. He says, this is talking about relationship. Why do we keep his commandments? Because we love him. We know him. Right? The person says, well, I know him. But you don't obey him? You, obviously, you don't know him. <laughs> you may think you know him. Well, you know him in a Greek corner kind of way. But do you know, know him the way he wants to be known? First John chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. Somebody read that one. One of the funny things about this is um, I don't know what other people dealt with, but Graham as a kid, I was always taught that salvation, in a sense, comes through a special prayer and faith. I didn't teach problem, you that. Problem was, it wasn't your fault. Um, I grew up, I grew up in a church that kind of gave me that impression. Um, the problem was, they never really quantified faith and this special prayer. So my terrified fear as a you know, 
What if I didn't pray it right? I could have prayed the wrong. Word. I left the word out. I didn't really mean it when I prayed it. So I'm pray- I, I had to sal- I prayed the salvation prayer probably more people more times than everyone in this room combined. But the irony was, all I needed the whole time was good works. If I looked at my life and seen I'm following God, according to First John, I didn't know that God's that's it had already done an efficacious work in my that's life right. to bring Him into relationship. Absolutely, James would agree with. You. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, as I told you so many times, the man who wonders if he has a relationship with God does. By the way, you were, you were trying to help me through all of these issues. 1 John chapter, 20, chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. And, and now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him and shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... Uh, sorry, if you know that, yes, he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Absolutely. Do we have a God that has any shadow of sin about him? No. He's righteous. So, if I'm following Messiah Yeshua, I should look like him. I like, I don't know why this is hard. I really don't. It's maybe why this is an ignored book. Uh, the next one is First John three five through eleven. We're almost done, y'all. It is amazing how many verses and passages can be pulled out of oh. small. I had to. I had to, to pare it down. Yeah. yeah. Just to slam the theological constructs that we're presented with when we begin to walk the Torah life. It's just over and over and over. In the conversation that I had regarding uh, the. If you think that you're pleasing uh, by doing a mitzvot, the verses that I offered were precious verses. Okay, so <laughs> what about them? <laughs> you know, it's it, we we read them. You know, I, I I I do the same thing. We read them and we gloss over them, and they don't penetrate our hearts. John is talking about a relationship, and if you want to know if you have a relationship, this is the way to know. The next one was First John 3, 5 through 11. Oh, excuse me. Go ahead. No, I was going to read that. Okay, please do. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let not one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Second time he said that. Just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God is manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he was because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does, uh, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. I love that. What's the definition of love one another? You keep his commandments. That's that's pretty remarkable that that's the pinnacle of good Protestant preaching. Love one another. And yet they skip the next phrase. And how do I know if I love my brother? I mean, everybody gets to define it. Is that it? 
I mean, the love your brother comes from the heart of Leviticus. How do I know? Read the rest of Leviticus to start with. But here, right in 1 John, it makes the connection. How do I know if I love my brother? Everyone who loves his brother keeps his commandments. And if you don't keep his commandments, you don't love your brother. And you don't have the life within you. This is a pretty, pretty, uh, these are pretty strong scriptures. But he's not talking in a strong way. He's not condemning people. What he's doing here is saying, isn't it great that we know him? And here's how we know. It is very encouraging. I mean, it should be. It absolutely should be. It's very encouraging to me. It's speaking to people who are having outsiders come to them saying, you have X, Y, and Z left to accomplish. And John saying, no, you already know you know God, and you don't need all this you know, special knowledge or whatever, because you already act like God. You obviously know Him. I get the that's last natural. one. From it's, man, that's unnatural. It is. It is. You've got to be a different creature. Absolutely. Of course, yeah. You know, my, by the way, if just, in case you haven't noticed, my mitzvot are in, imperfect. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that I don't want more. And as we've been talking about, it's the man who really loves the Lord says, give me more. More commandments. First John, I get this one, First John chapter 4, verse 21 through 5-3. This is mine. <laughs> it's my wines too. That's why I get to read it. This commandment we've had from him, that he who loves God should also love his brother. Whoever believes that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. Whoever loves the Father also loves the child who is born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous, not burdensome. We have to play games with these words to switch this around, don't we? We do. I mean, John is talking about a deep and abiding relationship with the Almighty, Creator of the universe, who's actually revealed His righteousness in fire and smoke and thick darkness and lightning and flashes and warnings not to approach the mountain because we're His treasured nation. I mean, what an awesome experience. His revealed righteousness to a people who didn't deserve it at all. And people go, oh, that's really the wrong message we need to send people. Instead, we need to tell them that they can't do those things. Because if they do those things, it's displeasing to God. Paul, yes, uh, absolutely. Trampling on the blood. Paul, uh, John and Paul agree with the Torah. I'm sorry. I am a great follower and fan of Paul. I really like Paul a lot. I like John, too. I like them both. They're great. Why? Because I believe that Paul never makes anything up, and neither does John, that they always simply elucidate what has already been said. And for them, both of them, relationship was the most important thing. As I've said before, the commandments are wonderful to me, but that's not the point. That's like, you know, that's like an aside. It's about a relationship. And the commandments come as a revelation of who he is. The one that I want a relationship with. Somebody was raising their hand here. So, they're faithful followers of Yeshua. How do we know? Well, they say they are. But listen to what Yeshua said. Is it all in there? Uh, You are the light of the world. Who said that before? I think it was you, wasn't it? You want to read this one? (laughs) Okay. Matthew 5, 14 says, You are the light of the world. 
we're going to get to this light thing again. This next, next lesson's got a light thing. It's very mystic, very cool. Uh, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What is light here? Just guess. Good works. Why? If they see your good works, so that the light, right? So, so he says, you're the light of the world. Good works are your light. Let your works shine. Let your light shine, right? Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, which commandments is a bad question? That's, what, that's what, the, what they call a rich one ruler in Matthew 12 asked. Which commandments? Matthew, yeah, Matthew 12. Which commandments? I was like, all of them I've kept. Which ones? <laughs> uh, how about it's all one package? Yeah. Which commandments? Whatever he says. Everything, everything that Hashem has said will do. Singular. Right. Rashi notes in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that the use of the singular in a plural sentence, the oddity of grammar, speaking of the commandment, is a is a intentional, obviously it's intentional, but it's intentional to teach us something, that all of the commandments are a single unit. As James said, not in the negative sense, but in the positive sense. Listen, when you set your feet to obey him, you get to take along something with you. And that is the perfect obedience of the one that you're following. That's pretty cool. Yeshua do that a lot with uh, having a verse that talk about his commandment and then his word. And you see that correlation back and forth in singular and plural forms, just in case anybody is wondering which one means which. Yes. They both That's right. That's amazing. Yep. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Woo, what's that mean? Oh, I skipped it, man. It's right there. Y'all already read it probably, huh? Righteous living means living because of relationship with Messiah is the best of all. I mean, he's talking about, you know, your righteousness, your, my disciples' righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's speaking in a general sense. Certainly there are Pharisees and there are scribes that love, love the Lord too and their righteousness was great. He's speaking in a general sense. Your righteousness, my disciples, why? Because he's the one closest to the center. You know? He's the whole point. <laughs> So if we follow him, that's best, right? If we follow him in relationship, the commandments are should be a natural outs- outpouring of a, or uh, offspring of a relationship. We're almost done. So what did we learn? Maybe not enough as we should, but we've seen that an individual can sin and have corporate effect. We we focused on that with sin. Did we get that out of righteousness as well? You tell me. How? How do we get that out of righteousness? 
You know, that, go back to that concept of the embers. We talked about it in terms of heat. And I see seat seat. It's a small thing. It's not a big thing for you to put on, is it? You know, okay, you might get a little ridicule or whatever, but it's not a big thing for you. Well, I just wanted to say that, you know, the sages teach us that one meets, meets by Luke leads to another, just as one sin leads to another. And I think um, Joseph's email last week to gather the men mm-hmm. to help Ken move just this past Sunday is a perfect example sure. of coming together, this ember burning even hotter, and, you know, creating that. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the principle of us being a light in the world. Um, I'm sorry. That's okay. Be your seat seat. Did you put them on so you could see them? It's hard to see them. What'd you put them on for? So that I don't lust after the, the desires of my heart, the behinds from which I follow, and also that others can see. Oh, he's he's not. He's not going to follow after the lust of his eyes because he has the. And and really, what they what they do for me is, by the way, thank you for putting them on because they remind me, because I can't see my own. Right. So the, seeing yours reminds me. Uh, seeing Zitzit is it's a small thing. I'm not talking about it being a big. It's not a big commandment. It's not. It's certainly identifying Mark, but that's not that's not the point. The point is, and this is what I love about them, is they're supposed to be a community experience. A community experience of saying, come alongside me. I'm reminding you, you remind me. Okay? It's like a string around the finger. I remind you, you remind me. And righteousness is contagious because of that. It's not just, okay, okay don't make them too long and don't make your phone too wide. We don't want to be like those Pharisees. You know? And it's missing the point. The point was, why were they putting tzitzit on? By the way, I don't think it was a length thing. It didn't go, okay, six inches, that's too far. It wasn't a length thing. What was it? What was the problem with too long and too wide? It wasn't serving its purpose. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You could hurt somebody. You could put an eye out with that thing. <laughs> no, no. It's because it wasn't serving its purpose. Instead of drawing other men to the commandments, it was glorifying a single man. It's like, okay, I'm great. Instead of saying, I do this for you. This is what I want you all to understand. When you put zitzit on, you don't do it for yourself. You do it, you do it for your brother. Obviously, you do it for the Lord, but you do it for your brother. That's the point. And that's, and that's what was being missed with zitzit that were too long. Mine are long, by the way. Zitzit that are too long or to fill in too wide. And I got some really wide ones. <laughs> we do it for one another. Also, one of the things on the ember effect of righteousness, um, the, the sages Lamed Bab concept of 36 righteous people preserving the world. You see this with Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, if I find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. I think there's also an idea of cumulative reward. We see that God's the rewarder of those who seek Him. If you have righteous men within a community who are seeking God, God blesses them, and at times it's an extension that blessing is expanded to the entire community. And as a, just as a funny example, um, this past weekend, helping men move, you had righteous men serving God to help another brother, and so God, in His mercy, gave Charlotte easily the most beautiful day in months. Well, it was a blessing to the men moving, but ironically enough, God blessing them been doing a good deed, blessed the entire city including by doing that good deed. Including those who are in sin. Yes, including those who are in sin. And this is, and this is the salt concept. Is we, you know, in, our, in our obedience to God, we preserve those around us, even if they don't want to be preserved. It's pretty cool. You know, as I said before, one of the greatest uh, 
ecological things that you can do is to do righteous deeds. Romans 8 says that all creation groans waiting for the revelation of, this, of, the, of the sons of God. So we, we, our revelation, in other words, showing who we are by what we do is beneficial not just to our brothers, but to everyone. They don't even have to understand it. It's fine. I don't care. <laughs> Although I'll explain if they ask me. Somebody over here said to Absolutely, absolutely. Um, final comments before we close. It's contagious. It is contagious. I mean, we, that's why we do. That's why we come together. We know it's contagious. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Y'all keep your eyes open. We thank you, O Adonai, our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they rise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for us, we will trust in you. Amen. Amen. Amen.